Questions and Answers. Who are the Oneness Pentecostals? Are they a charismatic denomination? Are their beliefs part of mainstream Christian churches? Or are they contrary to biblical scripture? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat will be exploring Oneness Pentecostals and their beliefs. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, with an overview of Oneness Pentecostals. Back in the 1990s, when I started getting into radio broadcasting and I was working with several Christian stations around the country, I remember there were a few popular Christian bands and preachers from the Oneness Pentecostal denominations who became widely recognized by the evangelical churches. Their material was sold in many Christian bookstores, and these preachers spoke at many Christian conferences around the world. However, it was soon pointed out that these singers and preachers were part of the Oneness Pentecostal churches, which taught essential doctrines that were contrary to the Bible. As a result, their songs were no longer allowed on many Christian stations, and their books were taken out of many Christian bookstores. And this led many people to ask, who are the Oneness Pentecostals and what beliefs place them outside of biblical Christianity? Many Christians have considered those who belong to the Oneness Pentecostal movement as part of biblical Christianity. And today, Oneness Pentecostal movement has an estimated 17 million followers worldwide. And here in the United States and throughout the world, they have some of the biggest churches they estimate about 10 to 15 percent rate of growth around the world and some of the largest churches in the United States and around the world are part of the Oneness Pentecostal movement and there's several TV and radio stations that belong to the Oneness Pentecostal churches. Although there are many churches that adhere to the Oneness doctrine they most commonly go by the names of the United Pentecostal Church International Jesus-only churches, or Oneness Pentecostal churches. Well, are Oneness Pentecostals to be included as churches that teach biblical Christianity? Or are their doctrines contrary to what the Bible teaches? Well, that's what we're going to discuss today here on Evidence and Answers. The Oneness Pentecostal movement, we can trace their origins to April of 1913, at a camp meeting in Los Angeles, California. Ari McAllister, a popular teacher from Toronto, Canada, preached a sermon on Acts 2.38, where he argued baptism must be done in the name of Jesus only and not the Trinitarian formula. He rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, the movement grew and attracted other charismatic denominations, including the Assembly of God leaders. Well, eventually, just a couple years later, in 1916, the Assemblies of God rejected the teachings of the Oneness Pentecostals, and 156 pastors left the denomination to form the Oneness Churches. Now, having studied Oneness Pentecostal doctrine, there are two key areas where Oneness Pentecostals deviate from biblical Christianity. 
First, when it comes to the doctrine of God, Oneness Pentecostals reject the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, in three separate and distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oneness Pentecostal churches teach a doctrine known as modalism. It's a historic heretical position called modalism. Modalism teaches this. There is one God who appears in three different forms or three different modes. So there's only one person in the Godhead, and he takes on three different modes or three different appearances. Modalism, its definition, derives its origin from the Greek playwrights. In Greek plays, there was only one actor who appeared in different characters. And when he would change characters, he would change modes, change his voice, and change his mask. And so there was one actor who had several masks who played all the parts in a particular play. And although he had different forms, different voices, it was still the same actor. And that's modalism, that there's one person in the Godhead who takes on three different forms. So historic modalism taught that the Father appears in three different forms. Modern modalism teaches that since the Incarnation, Jesus then appears in three different forms. At times he appears as the Father, or at times as Jesus the Son, or at other times the Holy Spirit. Or some Oneness Pentecostal churches teach that really there's only Jesus who appears in the form of the Father or of the Son, and that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but the impersonal Spirit of God. Now, on the doctrine of salvation, there are four essential requirements for salvation in the Oneness Pentecostal churches. First, one must have faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And of course, we're talking about the Jesus of the Oneness Pentecostals. Second, there must be repentance and water baptism in the name of Jesus alone. Acts 2.38 is used as evidence that the early church baptized only in the name of Jesus. And they maintain that baptism in the Trinitarian formula, as indicated in Matthew 28, is invalid since it implies there are three gods. So they claim Matthew 28.19 where Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is not to be taken as a command to baptize in that formula. Third, baptism in the Holy Spirit must be manifested with the speaking in tongues. Oneness movements maintain that speaking in tongues is not just a post-conversion indicator of the filling or baptism of the Holy Spirit as many charismatic denominations teach, but it is an essential ingredient required for the salvation of the believer. So everyone who's truly saved must manifest their salvation by speaking in tongues. And fourth, there's the maintenance of salvation by righteous living. One must live up to the holiness standards that are often set by the church. So such things as alcohol and tobacco are prohibited. Women are not allowed to cut their hair, wear short dresses or slacks, use makeup, or wear jewelry. Men are expected to dress conservatively, white shirts and often dark slacks, 
be clean-shaven and have short haircuts. Violations of these codes and standards set by the church may result in a loss of salvation and exclusion from the fellowship of their church. So you can see how this soteriology quickly becomes a works-oriented kind of salvation where you're saved by faith, then you must be water-baptized in the name of Jesus alone, you must speak in tongues, and then you must live up to these legalistic standards. So in order to maintain your salvation status. So you can see how this can quickly become a works-oriented kind of salvation. And of course, any kind of salvation that must be maintained by living up to a particular standard, there's always a lack of assurance of salvation amongst the believers. So those are basically the key points where one is Pentecostals deviate from biblical Christianity. Now let's first do a biblical evaluation of their doctrine of God. One is Pentecostals, of course, reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They believe that there is one person in the Godhead who appears in three different forms. However, the Bible teaches that there is one God revealed in three distinct and eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is taught in several places throughout the Old and New Testament. One of the clearest is in Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name. Name is singular, meaning one in nature, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The definite article is in front of each person, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, showing a distinction in person. So one name, one nature, but three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In John 1, 1, John states, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here, it says that the Word was with God. So here, the Word is a separate person. He's separate in person, but he's one in nature, and the Word was God. So there in John 1, 1, there's at least two persons there in the Godhead. So John 1, 1, it's a magnificent verse that destroys, you know, two heresies at once. The heresy of modalism and the heresy of Arianism or modern Jehovah Witness there or the modern Jehovah Witness movement. Also, if you look at significant moments in biblical history, such as the baptism of Jesus, all three members of the Trinity are present. The Son arises out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And a voice from heaven, the Father, thunders out of heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love. So there at the baptism of Jesus is one example where we see all three members of the Trinity present. Also in John chapter 5, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I bear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek out not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is talking about someone else here. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. So Jesus, the Son, is talking about someone else. Well, of course, in this passage, Jesus, the Son, God, the Son, is talking about God, the Father. See, if oneness Pentecostal 
doctrine was correct, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to say, I can do nothing on my own as I hear. Well, who does he hear from? Himself? I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will who, of him who sent me. Well, who sent him? Himself? See, it doesn't make any sense that Jesus does the will of the Father, okay, of another, and that he is sent by another. He says in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus is talking about someone else here. So you can see there is relational aspects revealed amongst the three members of the Trinity. See, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the same person, then the oneness teachers have a difficult job explaining several things. How the Father and the Son can love each other, how they can talk to each other, and how they can know each other. Let's take a look at these three actions. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5, 20, Jesus states, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. There's a relational aspect here. These passages would make no sense if Jesus was talking about himself here. Also, they converse with one another. For example, in John 17, 5, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Well, that would make no sense if Jesus is the Father or if Jesus and the Father are the same person. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, this would make no sense if Jesus... And the Father are one and the same person. And in verse 46, before he dies, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, th this makes no sense if Jesus and the Father are one and the same person. Also, they express knowledge, intimate knowledge of one another. Jesus says in John 5, 17, My Father is always at work. And so am I. I mean, th this makes no sense if Jesus and the Father are one and the same person. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So there's a relational aspect here. They know one another intimately. They know each other very well. Well, that's a very strange thing for Jesus to say that the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father if they're one and the same person. Also, we know that Jesus Christ was from eternity the Son of God. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of creation, at the beginning of time, the Word already was in existence. Christ was eternal. But he could not have been eternal according to one is Pentecostal doctrine if he was not in existence until willed by the Father. They could not coexist at the same time. But passages like John 1.1 show that Jesus the Son was eternally with the Father. He is eternal and he existed eternally with the Father. In the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of time, Jesus already was in existence. Colossians 1.17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is before all things. 
In John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. So here we see that Jesus was eternally existent as God the Son. There's another problem here as well. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, how can Jesus be the mediator between God and man if the Father and the Son are one and the same person? That's another difficult one here. And finally, the doctrine of the Trinity is necessary for salvation. You needed someone to bear the sins of the world, and that's Jesus Christ, to be that righteous sacrifice, to bear the sins of the world. And then you needed a righteous and holy judge to judge the one condemned with the sins of the world there. And so it's a soteriological or, or it's necessary for salvation. Someone had to bear the weight of the sin of the world and someone had to be a righteous judge accepting that sacrifice and condemning sin and judging sin. And so it is a soteriological necessity, the Trinity is, for salvation. Next, let's look at the doctrine of salvation. As I spoke before, there are four requirements for salvation in the Oneness Pentecostal churches. But according to the Bible, salvation comes by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one can boast. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Salvation comes by faith alone. That's all that's required for salvation or right standing before God. The one is Pentecostals require faith in Jesus alone, repentance and water baptism, the speaking of tongues and living up to a holy standard. There you're adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and it turns into a works-oriented kind of salvation. Salvation, you're made right with God by faith alone. Is baptism required by salvation? Well, what is required for salvation? Well, you, you need to believe in the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a summary of what the gospel is that we need to believe in in order to be saved. He says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred at one time, most who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So what is the gospel? It's the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No mention of water baptism here. In fact, in 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says this up to the Corinthians, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So you see, there's a distinction here between the gospel of salvation and baptism. So water baptism is not part of the gospel of salvation. What is required to be saved? Well, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith, or as John puts, belief. Or in Acts, a popular word used there is repentance. Well, what is faith? The Greek word there is pistis. Believe is the verb form pistuo. Have the same root. It means to trust. Okay? So it means to trust in Jesus Christ. Repentance, the Greek word there is metanao. It means to change your thinking. All right? So baptism is not faith. It's not belief. It's not repentance. What is baptism then? It's not part of the gospel of salvation. What is baptism? Well, it's a work. It is a work that is done after one receives Jesus Christ. It's part of the discipleship call. Okay? It is a work. If you say baptism is required for salvation, then, then you've added works to the gospel. Now, the popular passage taught by those who teach one must be water baptized to be saved is Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized. And so many groups, like the Oneness Pentecostals and others, will say, You see, baptism is required for salvation. Well, let's take a look at that verse. Peter says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? Now, the key there is that preposition for. For can mean in order to, or it can also mean, okay, if you look in a good Bible dictionary, it has many, many uses. Okay? It's the Greek preposition ice. And it can mean because of your salvation. Now, if baptism was required every time someone was saved, when Peter and the apostles preached, they would always say, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized. However, that's the only time Peter says, repent and be baptized. When he calls others to salvation, he doesn't repeat baptism. He simply says, repeat or believe in the name of Jesus Christ. For example, in the very next chapter in Acts 3.19, when people ask Peter how to be saved, he says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He doesn't repeat baptism. He says, repent so that your sins may be wiped out. If baptism was required for salvation, he would have repeated, repent and be baptized again and again and again. But he doesn't. He only says that in Acts 2.38. In Acts 5.31, when Peter is preaching, he says, so God exalted him, Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. He doesn't repeat the word baptism again. In Acts chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas directly, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul replies in verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. He didn't say believe and be baptized. He says believe. So salvation requires belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a work done as a result of your salvation, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. So baptism 
is part of the call of discipleship. It's a good work that's done after one receives Jesus Christ. So what's going on here in Acts 2.38? Why does Peter say here, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, repent and be baptized. The phrase and be baptized is what we call a parenthetical clause. It's at this time that Jews, Samaritans, and God-fearing Gentiles, they're familiar with the term baptism. Gentiles turning, you know, to Judaism, converts to Judaism were baptized. So the apostles at this time are emphasizing a new baptism under the new covenant established for Christ. So for a brief time, they highlight that it is a baptism established by the authority of Christ. But you see what Christ commanded the disciples in Matthew 28, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, please give us a call. Area code 808-483-0586. Or you can contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there on the homepage of our website. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with your family, friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.